even nowadays, many people still do not vote for women simply because the candidate is a woman. We have to struggle against the system once they enter in the governance or in the government. It doesn't require men to create the space. It requires men sometimes to step back from the space to enable women to occupy the space that they rightfully deserve. These women became suddenly very important. All the political parties reached out to those women because they wanted to have these seats covered with somebody for their parties. Federal systems created a very positive environment for the introduction of other measures which did lead to increased representation. This is Forum Fedcast, Episode 5, Gender Equality, Overcoming the Lipstick Parliament. Gender inequality remains a challenge in a range of different spheres. Politics, the sphere in which government decisions are made and policy is formulated, is a critical area in the efforts to achieve more gender equal societies. Participation in politics is a potent form of empowerment for women. The United Nations considers women's equal participation and leadership in political and public life as essential to achieving the 2030 UN Sustainable Development Goals. However, Women are significantly underrepresented at all levels of political and governmental decision-making worldwide. With few exceptions, in most countries women comprise less than 50% of elected representatives in the national parliaments and local government bodies. Men also considerably outnumber women in senior positions in government executives, despite the growing evidence that women's leadership in decision-making processes improves governance outcomes. In our last episode, we explored how federalism provides opportunities for gender equality through the multiple access points which enable women to enter politics. With seats available at the national, subnational, and local levels, federal systems offer a chance for women to attain public office and influence the policies that impact their local communities. But despite this federal advantage, women remain underrepresented in politics in both federal and unitary countries. Even when they do attain elected office, regressive attitudes towards women in politics often prevent their meaningful participation in political decision-making. In this episode, the second in our three-part series on gender and federalism, we're focusing on politics. What barriers do women face in running for public office in federal systems? What challenges do they encounter once elected? And how can we ensure that women's voices influence political decision-making? Outside of a political arena, we'll examine the role that men and boys play in supporting gender equality in federal systems. We will also explore another crucial aspect of gender equality, women's economic empowerment. So to kick things off, what benefits do federal systems offer for women and girls who aspire to become political leaders? Forum research indicates that federalism can be beneficial for women entering and participating in politics. Dr. Christine Forster, Associate Professor at the University of New South Wales and author of the Forum's Gender Equality and Federalism Report, identified advantages both in terms of representation and participation. What the report found was that in decentralised federal systems, 
the creation of subnational governments created a lot more opportunities for women to enter public office. And of course, more women in public office means over time, greater participation as they gain confidence, experience, skills, voice. Sosena Molatu, gender specialist at the Forum of Federations, points out that, despite ongoing challenges, in recent years, Ethiopia has seen an important increase in the representation of women in politics at the national level. In fact, the number of men in the national legislative and executive branches has grown significantly. Recently, the gender gap in the cabinet has also been increased to 50% since our new prime minister came to office. And as Mark Banzet, director of natural resources and governance at Global Affairs Canada highlights, important progress has been made globally with regard to increasing the number of women holding political office. Women's political participation is really important. And in this regard, there has been improvements. In the last two decades, the percentage of women parliamentarians worldwide has nearly doubled. In 2018, the number of gender parity cabinets rose from 6 to 10. Additionally, 24.1% of all parliamentarians at state level in the world are women. And as of August 2020, 21 women were serving as head of state and or head of government. However, as Susanna and Mark point out, many challenges still remain. And an increase in women's representation has not necessarily led to an increase in women's influence in policy and decision-making. The participation of women in politics, including government structure, remain a challenge in Ethiopia. The figures are not a match when it comes to women in leadership and strong presence in politics. Beyond representation and presence, more effort is needed to translate the increased level of representation into meaningful participation and decision-making. Women have to struggle against the system once they enter in the governance or in the government. There are still a huge number of barriers that prevent their full participation in government life and governance life. Women are subjected to personal discrimination based on their gender, the double burden, When women are elected to government offices, they can often expect to work long hours, inflexible hours, including working in the evening at the weekend. Because women are so often expected to own the unpaid work for caring and dependent in household duties, they may find themselves faced with the double burden to balance their professional and home lives. The other barriers also the capacity gaps. It is also observed among elected and appointed officials. This is evident in the limitation observed during the exercise of the oversight role of special aid committees of the parliament. One of the areas that's pretty clear is, is addressing women engagement in parliaments and in politics. And in some cases, it's great to have women parliamentarians, but it's important that they also have a voice and that they feel safe in their work. And that the women are active, mainstream participants in politics. Uh, I think that that's a really key, key area. And that can mean working to promote uh, women in politics, to try to identify and train up women leaders at municipal levels, at provincial or state levels, at national levels, to become leaders in their own right. On, on one hand, and on the other, too, when they're when they're there in those offices, to try to create measures that make it a safer place to work, a, a place free of harassment and discrimination, and a place where women are able to express their own views and not views that are imposed upon them by some 
traditional imposition of, of authority. For Ilana Trompka, the Director General of the Federal Senate of Brazil, increasing women's political representation is necessary if governance is to become more inclusive and representative of the population that it serves. The parliament would communicate much better with the population and would represent the population issues much better if you have inside the parliament all kinds of people. So it's something that we need to think very strongly. What kind of parliament do we want? We want a parliament that represents just part of our population or we want a parliament that represents the majority of our population? If we want that everyone from our citizens look at us and see them in us, we must be more plural than we are now. So it's something that the population should change and they should vote for women, they should vote for black, they should vote for homosexuals. But it's something that we inside the parliament need to think too. It's not something that will come from the citizens, from the parliament. It's something that we need to think inside the parliament, which kind of representations we want to be, and how we, the parliament, can talk with all the voices that we have in Brazil, with all the cultures that we have in Brazil, with all the folks that we have in Brazil. If we want to be this melting pot, we need to be more plural. Before women can begin to influence political decision-making, they first need to attain political office. But a variety of barriers inhibit women's ability to win seats in federal countries. In Brazil, female candidates face the challenge of being overlooked and under-resourced by their own political parties. The challenges faced by female candidates in Brazil are many and varied. The most common ones is the lack of party support. Almost half of the party's affiliates are women, because half of the population in Brazil is composed by women, in fact, 52%. But they are not occupying decision-making, they are not on the top of the political party and management positions. So, in the elections period, resources, the money, are usually distributed by national directory, which is composed mostly by men. As we have more men in the parliament than women, and the candidates used to be re-elected, the money goes always for the same people. Female candidates still have problems building networks or influence and support from parties, which affects campaign performance, makes it exceedingly difficult to build their candidates from the basics. So, They need money for everything, and they don't have it. And as Ilana explains, in some cases, women may need existing connections, such as a prominent male relative, to achieve political legitimacy in the eyes of voters. In Brazil, female candidates with a family history in politics often have a better chance of securing public office. The family name sometimes strengthens a candidacy that would otherwise be difficult. A large number of these candidates come from already well-established political families, what I was told, in something very common in Brazil. So we have here in the Senate, we have 12 senators. Part of them were elected because of their professional or the fights that they have 
or the positions that they got, but part of them were elected because of the families, because of the husband or the parents or have a brother that's in the political party. You carry all the heritage in your name. A lack of women in public office means that there is also a lack of role models to pave the way for girls and young women interested in pursuing a political career. Susena has seen the impact that positive role models have had on the aspirations of women and girls in Ethiopia. Increasing political participation of women has also its own positive impact on the life of girls. More girls are inspiring when they see women political leaders. It encourages them to enter in political areas. And Ilana has personal experience of how having women in positions of political leadership helps to shape the perspectives of the next generation. When I got my position, I had a daughter with three years old. So she was very young. She needs me and I need to work very hard. Sometimes she she used to come with me to the Senate to be with me and for me to have the opportunity to work. In the end, that was very interesting because she learned that women can be in any place that women want. Sometimes when we have a big fight in my house, my husband with my son, and things come to be very difficult, Clara, my young daughter, says, when you have a big challenge or a big problem, you need to call a woman. She knows how to do it, how to solve the problem. So, in fact, she learned it from her education, for example. Coming back to the question of the federal advantage. Even though federal countries have more positions of elected public office, and therefore more seats available that can be potentially occupied by women, this doesn't necessarily guarantee greater representation. However, federal systems do provide a conducive environment for one of the primary mechanisms used to increase representation, gender quotas. What the research found, interestingly, was that the increased number of seats did not in of itself lead to greater representation. So in federal countries where there were just a lot more seats, there wasn't really any significant difference between the number of women in parliament, both national and subnational, than in unitary countries. But what the research did find, which I thought was very interesting, was that federal systems created a very positive environment for the introduction of other measures which did lead to increased representation. And the most important of these is, of course, gender quotas, which are very effective in both unitary and federal systems. But what was interesting in terms of the federal systems was that there were a number of examples where gender quotas were introduced at the subnational level. And maybe just in one or two states or provinces or regions. And then through that sort of process of policy exchange and transfer, other subnational units would then take on board those gender quotas. And gradually, what we would find would be that the entire country would suddenly be embracing gender quotas. And Mexico was a, a really good example of that, where they were introduced at the national level and at the subnational level, but the subnational units had control over the percentage of the quota. And they started with very low quotas and then gradually looking at their neighbouring states decided to increase their quotas. So that was very effective. It was very effective in Germany as well, where voluntary candidate quotas were gradually adopted by all the parties over a period of time. 
but the introduction of quotas alone may not have the intended effect if they are not designed properly. Other factors have to be taken into account when implementing them. The introduction of gender quotas in Brazil provides an interesting case study of the strengths and weaknesses of this kind of intervention. Let me tell you something that I consider a key challenge in Brazil. Quotas for women were intended as an instrument to increase the number of elected women for public officers, but their application depends on several factors. However, they can be of different types and varied in each country. Here in Brazil, it's very common to say that the quotas do not work, and I will tell you why they do not work. The quotas are an instrument for us to have women candidates, but they do not guarantee places in the parliament. And in fact, if we analyze the number of women elected to the parliamentary position, Since the adoption of the quotas in 1995, we have realized that they have not been an effective measure. However, it's important to contextualize quotas in Brazil, so we understand not only their potential, but also their weaknesses. One important thing here is that it's okay that we have a quota for the number of the candidates. So we need to have 70% of the candidates from one gender another 30% from the other gender. So it's important that you have at least 30% of the candidates that are women. But these do not guarantee that you have 30% of the places in the parliament for women. Nowadays, here in Brazilia, we have in the Senate, more or less 15%, and the same number in the House of Representatives. So it's an important law, but it's not enough. Closely linked to the issue of quotas are the barriers that women face in relation to campaign finance. In Brazil, a gender-equitable distribution of funding for candidates was legally imposed by the judiciary. But even this didn't solve the problem entirely. Sometimes, as Brazil is a traditional country, very conservative, it's difficult to change the laws in the National Congress. So sometimes we have what we call a juridication of the law. The justice decided in the name of the National Congress. They decided that if you have 30% of the candidate of one gender, you need to divide the money in equal parts. Because before last election, they have 30% of candidates that were women, 70% that were men, but 99% of the money for men. And now the justice decided that must be equal. If you have 30% of women, you need to divide it at at least 30% of the fund, the money that political party receives must go to the woman. Okay, it was good, but it was not enough. Why? Because they decided to put all the 30% in the hands of the same woman. So we have few new women in the parliament because the woman that was most voted received all the money. They were okay by the law, but did not guarantee more women in the parliament. Gender equality in politics is not simply about the number of women being elected and assuming public office. It is also about their meaningful participation in policy and decision-making. 
In a field dominated by men, it can be difficult for women to make their voice truly heard. Female politicians are frequently treated differently to their male counterparts and often have limited influence on policy formulation. It's really important that women not be the objects of discussion in this regard and that, that women are able to express themselves and their, and their voices and to be not given a place because women don't need to be given a place. They need to claim this, the place that, that they own, that is their space to, to speak, which is the public square, the same square where men, men are speaking. Just anecdotally, I was uh, working in a different role a few years ago, and I was at a, a women's economic empowerment focused conference. And there was a, a minister who stood up in a, in a foreign government that shall not be named and said in front of a, a group of, of people who are you know, working in the area of gender equality and women's economic empowerment and said that behind every man is a, is a great woman. <laughs> and I just about choked <laughs> as I was listening to this because you know, this individual's spouse was also a parliamentarian <laughs> in her own right and, and was a great and is a great leader in her own right. And I just, I just want to draw the attention of the importance of, of making that connection that it's, it doesn't require men to create the space. It requires men sometimes to step back from the space to enable women to occupy the space that they rightfully deserve. The aggression against women in politics comes in all forms. They are ignored, sidelined, places in minor position, censored for their behavior, their private decisions, their appearance, and their ideas. When they are not ignored, they are distinguished by their beauty or other attributes that have no influence on their professional ability. They say that there was a lipstick parliament when you have a lot of women together. The male environment of politics is also not receptive to the entry of women into decision-making, in which sexist comments bordering on verbal harassment are recurrent in the corridors and centers of power. And as Ilana just touched on, one of the most important barriers to women's full participation is a deeply embedded traditional view that politics is a male field. Women are just not part of the club. The first female senator in Brazil, her name was Eunice Miquiles, and she was elected as a substitute senator in 1979. And she always tell us a very interesting story. She said that when she came to Brasilia for the first time and she was received in the plenary of the Senate, one of the two senators came to receive her with flowers. And she received the flowers. And then she thought, they received the other senators with flowers too? Or was just me? Of course, it was just her. It was a way to make her understand that she was different. She was not part of that group. And the prevailing view of politics as a masculine domain is even reflected in the built environment of political institutions. I was the general director of Brazil in 2016 when we built the first woman bathroom inside the plenary of, of the Senate. 2016. Until 2016, if one senator decides to go to the bathroom, she needs to leave the plenary. Why? Because when we built Brasilia in 1960, and I say 1960, the women's vote since 1932 in Brazil, but in 1960, when they built the National Congress, they do not imagine that women could be part of that. 
female politicians are frequently given what are perceived to be soft portfolios, and often struggle to gather support from their political peers for their ideas and policy initiatives. And I was talking about Eunice Michelis, and, and she faced multiple challenges because the ideas of bringing women and men closer together in terms of rights was poorly received by the politicians. During her eight years in office, she did not manage to pass any of her bills. While some were rejected outright, others were ignored and did not even get on the voting agenda. The rare proposals that were approved by the senators would usually be overturned by the federal deputies. In a lecture she gave at a business association, she was interrupted by the president of the institution, who bumly accused her of dealing only with secondary issues, such as family planning, and said that the woman would only be on equal terms with men if they discussed issues such as nuclear energy. This is another kind of prejudice, to decide what kind of thing women and men could talk. And people try to rotulate women and say, okay, we need to talk about education and about violence against a woman, but not to talk about economic issues or, as he told, about nuclear energy, because this is nothing for women. In Ilana's view, female candidates struggle to attract votes because voters are more familiar and trusting of male candidates with a track record in politics. Even nowadays, many people still do not vote for women simply because the candidate is a woman. And those elect suffer regardless of their political spectrum. In the last elections, the UN woman decided to do a research here in Brazil. And they realized that although women are not elected here in Brazil, people think that they could vote in women. This is one step. But if people think it's a possibility, why do not vote? Because they voted the ones that they know. People in general do not want to risk their vote. If they voted once for someone that's a wrong candidate, people will vote again four years after. So they vote the ones that they know. As most of the parliaments are composed by men, these are the ones that are elected. So we need to risk. No, we need to try. We need to be more brave, have more courage to elect women. Once women attain public office, it's important that the institutions and procedures of parliament are women-friendly. Since 2015, Canada has seen women take half of the ministerial positions in the federal cabinet. So when I talked about those that gender parity uh, cabinets uh, around the world, getting bigger Canada is one of those. And in addition, many of the operating rules and procedures of our House of Commons, so our lower house of Parliament, uh, have been adjusted to improve work-life balance and change procedures that discriminate against women parliamentarians. One actually that is fairly recent is changing the standing orders of, of the House of Commons to enable nursing mothers to bring their infants into the chamber, which is normally a, a place that you can't be, and to recognize that a nursing mother is normal and that can work and can be a real contributor to society in all aspects. These are federal examples, but, uh, but we can draw down 
all the way down from you know engaging young women in politics to using parliamentary means to to really promote uh, gender equality. Gender-based political violence, an attempt to silence women's voice, is faced by women at all levels of government. Women in politics are also victims of sexual harassment and assault, often with few consequences for the perpetrators. What we call gender political violence, that we have many cases in Brazil. We have Marielle Franco, that was murdered two or three years ago. And we have another very sad case last year in the city of Sao Paulo, when a man that was member of the parliament of the state of Sao Paulo put his hands in the breath of his colleague, a member of the parliament too, in front of the cameras. And you know what's more sad in this episode? He's still in the parliament. He was punished with 90 or 120 days. But now he will be back. A number of the challenges we've heard about at the national level from Ilana are also replicated at the local level. Ursula Keller, Senior Policy Advisor and Head of the Governance Unit at the Swiss Agency for Development and Cooperation, or SDC, illustrates this through an SDC program which aims to support women in local governments in Nepal. How to promote women's political empowerment on local level. And for example, here, a program of SDC in Nepal which the aim was or is political representation of Dalit women in local governments, which they were the low caste women, which usually have very vulnerable group of society with literally no representation. Through the new federal constitution of Nepal, because inclusion was one of the big teams there, there was reserved seats for Dalit women on all levels, including on local levels. And these reserved seats in the local councils, they were accessible only through a ticket by the local branches of the local political parties. That made that, of course, these women became suddenly very important. All the political parties reached out to Daly's women because they wanted to have these seats covered with somebody for their party. So the political parties, of course, they became critical gatekeepers at the same time the women experienced the first time this kind of valorization through the attention they received by these local stakeholders who before maybe really wouldn't pay too much attention to them. As Ursula explains, even though reserved seats helped Dalit women attain public office, they needed additional support to become effective political operators. That was a positive experience for many women, but on the other side, because their general low status and the strong societal segregation and exclusion of the low caste groups, this doesn't automatically come then with a recognition of their political role as well. Once elected, they then often were instrumentalized. The meetings were held without telling them, or they were done at a time where they couldn't attend or they were asked to sign papers and budgets without understanding, because many of them maybe are illiterate. If they would reject them to sign, they maybe would risk them for the next time to receive the seat. So they were still very vulnerable in this. And so the program was really about the empowerment and leadership program for these women to educate them. What is a budget? What does it mean? 
what are your rights as an elected representative, etc. Some women really became quite strong and they managed also to climb higher in the political ladder. And returning to the situation in Brazil, despite the many challenges in the country, some progress has been achieved in recent years, with women now occupying a number of senior leadership positions. It's not everything so bad. <laughs> so in this current legislature in the Senate, in the directing committee, the leadership of the women's bench was installed. The Senate also currently has a female standing committee president and had, as of the last election, the first female candidate of the president of the Senate. Her name is Senator Simone Tebet, and she's the representative of the women's bench that was installed. For Dr. Forster, women's equal involvement in policy and decision-making will amplify gender equality initiatives in other areas. I really think that getting 50% of women in parliaments across the world, not just, sorry, not just national parliaments, but at subnational level and then at local level, and then that leads to all the other issues, violence against women, economic empowerment, you know, service delivery, family relations, all of those things. I think if women had equal voice, equal power in decision-making, all of those things would be more easily addressed. And I think that the research clearly shows that gender quotas are the most effective way of achieving that goal. And what I found in my research was that federal systems do provide advantageous conditions for the introduction of gender quotas and for their effectiveness and adoption. So I think it's an advantage that we have in federal systems. Forum Fedcast is brought to you by the Forum of Federations, the global network on federal and evolved governance. In the series so far, we focused almost exclusively on women and girls in our exploration of gender equality and governance. But gender equality is not only a women's issue. So what is the role of men and boys in advancing gender equality in federal countries? Another finding was the importance of men as allies. The report found that having men as allies was really important and the women's movement must embrace and look to and we must all see how important it is, particularly in federal systems, because what I found was that the fragmentation caused by decentralization can really be bolstered and assisted by drawing on men, the support of men, particularly male parliamentarians at both the national level and the subnational level. Just to give an Australian example, here in Australia, the Labour Party introduced a 50% gender candidate quota. And in order for that to be adopted, it needed the support of many of the men in the Labour Party. And it's been really successful. And the Labour Party has over 50% women candidates. Of course, unfortunately, in Australia, we have a conservative government who doesn't have voluntary gender quotas. So we don't have a good number of women in parliament but that's just because of our election, which didn't elect the Labour government. From our, from our Canadian perspective, from the perspective of our feminist international assistance policy and, and from the Canadian government's feminist foreign policy and the approach that we have, th this approach recognizes that engaging men and boys is really fundamental as stakeholders and as partners in an important strategy for achieving gender equality and the empowerment of all women and girls. 
addressing partnerships between women and men, girls and boys is crucial for transforming these unequal relationships. Just to be a little more practical, programs that engage men and boys and promote dialogue and community engagement can help redefine gender perspectives that help perpetuate harmful practices such as child early and forced marriages. I think that it's really important that men are are part of the conversation, that the gender equality isn't a women's issue because gender is actually involves more than just women. And it's really fundamental and that it needs to be a broad conversation that happens and frankly can start in the home. It starts in society and it's something that can work in all cultural contexts. It's something that's really based in you know universal values of human rights. And I think that's something we need to look back to. For Ursula, men play a key role as gatekeepers. They have the ability to support or obstruct women's political empowerment in both the family and public domains. We really saw that, particularly for women's political empowerment, the support of men is really such a crucial factor. We have other projects in MENA. The Middle East and North Africa region. Where there was empowerment of women for representation in local councils. And there they integrated right from the beginning, work with families and work with husbands, because they saw that those women that have the support of their family and their husband, they managed to get these status and these positions. And it became almost like the single most important factor. Which is, of course, a bit sad as well, but I think it's just important to understand and it shows you the importance that you actually have to work with men as well on gender equality. We see it, there's like two issues at stake. So it's really men as gatekeepers because they are gatekeepers as husbands, brothers, fathers. So it's the family. And on the other side, it's also as party leaders or community leaders. It could be traditional religious leaders. And I think we have to find ways to engage them and to find the common ground that actually it's for the benefit of all, the whole family, the whole community. It's about working with men and raising awareness that is actually nothing for them to lose, but it's just to gain for everybody. So I think often it's this message that the joint benefit for the whole family and the children that helps men to support women in gaining their own voices and, and, and influence. Also men to be able that their wives maybe stand in the spotlight as public figures, and that is not making them weak, but to accept it. There is a whole way of men working through these transformations. Another important area of gender equality is women's economic empowerment. As Ilana and Mark point out, economic empowerment begins in the classroom. First of all, we need to talk about education. When we are talking about women today, we need to think about the growth because they will be the future. So what are we changing in our economic organization to incentivize the growth to study more? Because we know that here in Brazil, I have more women in university than men, but then they could not get higher positions in the market. Education is also really key to empowering women and girls and, and at the same time engaging in poverty reduction. 
So significant progress has been made over the past decades to bridge the gender gap in education. But around the world, girls remain more likely than boys to experience an abrupt end to their education during times of crisis and conflicts. Engaging men on the importance of education and making them partners in this endeavor remains a significant challenge. Alongside ensuring that girls achieve higher levels of education, what else can be done to support women's economic empowerment in federal systems? The forum's research provides some evidence of what might be effective in this area. In the area of economic empowerment, having strong protective employment rights countrywide is important. Again, this is difficult in federal systems of how lies with the subnational units because it requires law reform in different parts of the country. I think small business for women and women entrepreneurs, training and financial literacy, media and all that kind of thing, I think supporting local initiatives is really important. I think this is a real important site of growth for the economic empowerment of women in the future. Ilana believes enabling women to work and achieve their own financial independence not only supports gender equality, but also helps to materially improve the lives of individual women and their families. So one way to get out the woman with this violence circle is to give the human the opportunity to work. And we have a quota here in the Senate that now it's a piece of law that we separate of a quota in our contracts for women that suffer by violence. A woman told me once that with her first salary, it was the first thing that she could buy something for her kids. And one of them asked her, for popcorn, she could not have money to buy popcorn for her kids. This, it's a way to say, economic independence is important for the future of the woman and for the future of the kids. Because they learn from the example. The second woman, she were cleaning here the Senate. And she told me, you know, it's the only eight hours in my day that I can sing. I can sing because I have peace inside me. Because I know that he won't get into the Senate to kill me. I'm safe. When we change the life of a woman, you change the life of a family. Because if they can support themselves, they do not accept to have violence inside their homes. And sometimes for them, for the first time in their lives, they have a home that gives them security. But of course, we need quotas in the market. We need the quotas in the political parties. So we need to try to create this kind of quotas to give the woman a better opportunity of life. And if you have a better opportunity of life, we have opportunities with education and in the market and maybe in the political issues too. Now that we've heard about the opportunities and challenges of gender equality in federal systems and the difficulties that women and girls still face, what are the implications of this for policymaking? And what kind of interventions might support further progress? Obviously, there are a lot of things you don't have control over. So you can't, for example, necessarily control whether you have a conservative central government or a more progressive central government. You can't necessarily control the strength of traditional and cultural practices that discriminate against women. So you can't necessarily control those things. But if you are aware of 
the ways in which a federal system can be utilised by looking at examples in other countries, thinking about the obstacles that you might have that are maybe similar to ones in other countries. If you've got an understanding and awareness of that, then I think it can really assist you in strategising for how you're going to operate within the particular federal system that you are within in terms of making changes. So I think understanding and knowing both the opportunities and the obstacles can assist you on the ground in terms of how you go about deciding which interventions are worth pursuing. In the last episode in the series, we'll hear about the approaches used by Canada and Switzerland in their efforts to support women's empowerment around the world and assess the impact that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on gender equality. So tune in next time for more. That was Forum Fedcast. Huge thanks to our guests, Dr. Christine Forster, Ilana Tromka, Susanna Mulatu, Ursula Keller, and Mark Banzer. The full Gender Equality and Federalism report is available to download for free via the Forum website at forumfed.org. That's forumfed.org, where you can access a wealth of other resources on federal and multi-level governments. You can also find us on Twitter at ForumFed and as Forum of Federations on Facebook and YouTube. We want to hear from you. Get in touch with the podcast by emailing podcast at forumfed.org and tell us what subjects you would like to see covered on future episodes. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and give us a review on your platform of choice. This episode was written and hosted by Diana Shebenova and me, Liam Whittington. It was produced by Asma Zribi and Liam Whittington. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time on Forum Fedcast.